I direct your attention to the Word of God, to Peter, 1 Peter, in the very last chapter. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The epistles of the apostles all contain exhortation. That is not mere instruction, but an imperative, an urging, an appeal to do something about something. That's what an exhortation is. It's, this is what you should do. This is what you must do. This is what you ought to do. By all means, do it. They're filled with that. Paul's letters, James, Peter, John, especially here, Peter gives exhortation. Several times he has used this urging that you do something. And here he's making an exhortation to the shepherds of the church. He calls them the elders. So I exhort the elders among you. Interesting, we know, of course, that Peter's writing this letter to the diaspora, to the dispersion of the believers throughout Asia Minor and Pontus and Bithynia and Galatia and those places. It is interesting that here in the first century, before probably mid-60s A.D., it's already established that there are elders in the churches. This is one of those epistles that give us the order traditions. That is, tells us what the traditional orders of the church are. And it's not surprising. God always governs His people through elders. The word presbyteros, from which we get our word presbyterian, means elder. It means an older person. Sometimes it can also mean someone who enjoys a status of authority because of the traditional age and respect that goes with it. The Bible says that the crown of glory is the gray head. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I've been had gray hair since I was in my 30s. Now what's a little bit left of it is still gray. God has always ruled His people through elders. He did it with the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, David. God's people were ruled through men who were usually in excess of 40 years old by chronolog chronological years and even more so. Also, all of these men I just mentioned were shepherds. Even Moses, trained as a king, 
but God trained him as a shepherd to lead and to protect and to feed and to rule over his people. So already in the church, there is this notion that God's people are cared for by men in the church who have that particular set of qualifications, gifts, and capability. Now, while it says something about order in the church, it doesn't say much about rigid order. And nowhere in the New Testament do we find the fixed and hierarchical systems that we'll find in some of the other branches of the Christian faith. It never reached that point of having popes and prelates and archbishops and all the rest. In fact, the movement is against that. Peter refers to himself here in three qualifications or three descriptions of himself with respect to the elders of the church. He calls himself a fellow elder. In fact, he makes that word up. That word's not used anywhere else. It's a compound word, means together elder. He is one of the elders. He's not the chief elder. He's not the principal elder. He's not the primate. He's not the pope. He is a fellow elder. And he comes to that particular place by what he's been through. He is a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He mentions the sufferings of Christ in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The suffering of Christ was conciliatory. It was reconciling. It was restoring. It was reaching out and bringing us. Christ died for the ungodly. He died in due season. He died an atoning death. He died a proper death. He died as the perfect son, suffering the curse of the disobedient son, hanging upon a tree. Peter had witnessed the sufferings of Christ, literally, physically. He had seen Christ crucified, but he knew something of the sufferings of Christ. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The sufferings of Christ lead us to purity. Because he has purged our sins, which were in his own body on the tree, and has suffered once for all, he has brought to us a cleansing, a purity, a holiness, a righteousness, which has been imputed to us and placed upon us by God's own saving hand. And we are to live lives that are reflective of that cleansing and of that purity. In verse 12 of chapter 4, he talks about the sufferings of Christ in this way. He says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There's a 
prospective reward for our sharing in the sufferings of Christ. No matter how much we suffer physically, we will not suffer beyond what he suffered in the beating and the abuse and the crucifixion that he suffered physically unto blood. No matter how much we suffer emotionally, we will never suffer the derision and the privation and the persecution that came to Christ as he was ridiculed by the mob and mocked and cursed and derided. No matter how much we suffer spiritually, we will never suffer what Christ suffered when in that time as he hung there in our place bearing our sins and God Almighty, who is of too pure of eyes to behold iniquity, could not look upon his son. And the son cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We'll never suffer like that. But he suffered that for us. So what fiery trial comes upon us? What sufferings we have in this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in Christ. But we do share in his suffering. There's a sad sense in which if we do not suffer, if we do not feel some heat, if we do not have some thorn in the flesh, if we do not have some vexation of soul upon us, we tend to forget God. We tend to become complacent. We tend to become comfortable. We tend to become myopic and short-sighted. But when we feel the barbs of suffering, if our heart is in the right place and if we're tuned to God, it takes us where we need to be. It takes us to our knees. It takes us to our beginnings. It helps us recall, as Peter says in his second epistle, that we have been saved from our sins in the first place. There's something about being flat of our backs, literally or spiritually, that causes us to look up. And that's the sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It's not just physically and emotionally and spiritually what we suffer, but it is the, the pushing us to it. The pushing us to it that puts us where we need to be. When we are suffering, we're in the wheelhouse of Christ. We're where He is. Where our prayers are more fervent where our needs are more immediate and our dependency upon him is more patently obvious. Peter had shared in the sufferings of Christ. He was going on to even share in greater sufferings in his lifetime, as we know. But it's more than just the suffering of Christ. It is that he claims to be a witness. The word for witness principally means someone who has observed something seen it, an eyewitness, and then renders testimony concerning it. That's what a witness is. But then it goes beyond that to the notion that he's willing to die for the truthfulness of his testimony. 
So the word for witness in the Greek is the word that we get our English word martyr. A martyr is someone that dies for his testimony because he has seen and he cannot help but declare that which he has seen. And that's what being a witness is for Peter. That's what being a witness is for the elders to whom he is speaking principally. And we can learn from that as well. It's being a, and I had never heard this term until I read it in a real good commentary recently, being a blood witness. Willing to testify with our blood that which is true. Much like the blood of Abel cried out in witness against the awful sins of Cain. Then he describes in the third place that he's a partaker or will be a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Peter saw the glory of God. He saw Christ crowned with glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that was just a glimpse, just a small flicker of the transcendent glory of the Almighty God, the glory which Christ had with the Father before the world began. And Peter had seen that. He saw that in the upper room when Christ appeared. He saw Christ fully human, but fully resurrected. He had never seen it. He saw Christ like that out on the sea side. Then that early morning when Christ appeared and met with his disciples who had been fishing all night and he had prepared fish and he had prepared bread for them. And Peter had known the glory of God through Christ when he had seen Christ commission him to feed the sheep, to tend to the sheep, to feed the lambs. When he had called him to the office of shepherd, of pastor. But he anticipated a greater glory, a glory that awaits, a glory that is ahead, a glory that we have just only slight perception through the eye of faith that's out there. That time when we will see him what the word revealed means. It means to pull back the curtain and let you see what is there. And what is there is a transcendent, eternal glory that awaits all. Well, he gives two exhortations. He says, pastor the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. Now we've already mentioned the word presbyteros, the word for elder. In this particular thing, we have the word shepherd or the word pastor. And then we have the word oversight, which is the word episkopos, which means overseer and are sometimes translated bishop. So all three of these terms refer to the same functionality, the same office, the same practice, the same exercise. There's not division is sometimes is spelled out in some branches, of, but we're talking about one work and it's the work of shepherding the flock. We've mentioned 
that the elders were to shepherd the flock. We find two extraordinary expositions of this in John chapter 21, which is that passage where Christ talked to Peter that I alluded to just a moment ago. And then we have a very similar passage to this in Acts chapter 20, where Paul in the Isle of Miletus spoke to the elders of the church of Ephesus and gave them, and he told them to shepherd the flock that is among you. And that's really what he's saying here. He says, shepherd the flock that is among you. It's interesting that it didn't say the flock that is below you. He didn't say the flock that is out away from you. He didn't say anything else but the flock that is among you. Shepherding is a, a, an, a shoulder rubbing experience. It's a hand-holding experience. It's a picking up and a holding up experience. It is attending to the flock. A shepherd is willing to leave the 90 and 9 in the fold and go search for the one lost sheep. A shepherd is willing to fight the bear and the lion and the wolf to protect the sheep. A shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And now we can see Peter's beginning to move it. He cannot help it, but he is going to now put before us a shining example, a model shepherd, a model elder, a model check, check, two, overseer. Two, two, check. And who else? Check two. But Christ check. himself. Check. That's the that's the one he's pointing us to. You remember in ancient Check. Israel, the prophet Ezekiel. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Quite a character. You need to study the book Check. of Ezekiel sometime Elizabeth. in your spare time. Check. Elizabeth, <laughs> can you hear me? And after you studied it, you won't understand it. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Not all of it. You, you need to get a good commentary or two and work on now? it a little bit. And if you really want to understand it's Ezekiel, you've got to kind of let your mind yeah. open up a yep. little bit because it is filled with yeah. fireworks Check. and all kinds of, two, 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 two. of uh, pyrotechnics solid now, but there's that. in the imagination. Ezekiel, the prophet, was commissioned by the Lord to bring a grave and a serious message to God's people living in captivity by the river Kibar in an area of Babylon. And God says, I'm against the shepherds. I'm against the shepherds. Well, the shepherds of Israel were the prophets, the priests, and the princes, the kings. God had raised these offices up to shepherd his people. And the Lord says, I'm against the shepherds. But then listen to the sweet promise. They said that they have been feeding themselves and not the sheep. They eat the fat. They clothe themselves with the wool. They slaughter the fat ones. They do not feed the sheep. The weak they have not strengthened. The sick they have not healed. The injured they have not bound up. They, the strays they have not brought back. The lost they have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled over them so that my sheep are scattered with no shepherd. My sheep are scattered. They're wandered over all the mountains and every high hill. My sheep are scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against 
the shepherds. What a sad state of affairs. God looks at the very men that he has called and equipped to take care of his sheep and God turns his wrath upon them and says, I'm against them. But listen to the gospel. No longer will the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep who may have been scattered. So I will seek my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. And I will bring them from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and in rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them, says the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 34. When the shepherds had failed, God said, I will shepherd my sheep. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Who is this one shepherd? This is not a prophecy of King David. Ezekiel lived a long time after King David had already passed from the scene and had served the Lord in his generation, and he was long gone. But it was David who had sensed this very presence, this very promise when he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. That's just what it comes down to. Who is the shepherd of the sheep? Ultimately, finally, and gladly, it is the Lord. He is the model. He's called here the chief shepherd, the ark shepherd. But he's called in John by his own words, the good shepherd. And in the book of Hebrews, he's called the great shepherd. It is the Lord who is our shepherd who feeds us, who guides us, who restores us, who seeks us and finds us and protects us and brings us into his fold. And that's what Peter here is setting forth to the shepherds or to the elders of the church. He tells them that they are to exercise this oversight with three, by the way, there are a lot of threes, triads in the book of First Peter. You can see them. And we just saw one, how he's a fellow elder, a witness of the suffering, and a partaker in the glory. But now it says the shepherds, the elders should, should pastor and shepherd, not under compulsion, 
Not for shameful gain. Testing. One. Not domineering. That's a Testing picture of the Lord. One, two. That's the way the Lord. I don't really know what adequate volume is in here. So Not I'm just keep talking under compulsion. Testing one, two. Christ laid Test. down his life willingly. Test. Not Test. my will, O Lord, but thine be done. And he came willingly offering himself and laying down his life for us. And that's the way the example is set forth. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain. That's Christ. He left the splendor of glory. He was rich. Yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Christ did not do it for shameful gain, for mammon, for lucre, for money. He did it for love. And it says eagerly. I believe that in the heart of God there was a certain emotion pounding in his heart from all eternity where Christ could not wait to come to earth to save us from our sins. He so loved the world that the Father sent him and he went eagerly and willingly. But then in a final instance, he talks about the elders, the shepherds should be types. They should be models. They should be examples. Not of domineering. It's literally the word kurios, lordship, lording it over. Not lording it over, but being a model. And that's what Peter refers to Christ. It's called the moral influence theory of the atonement. It's a good theory of the atonement. It's not the only one. It's not the only thing the atonement accomplishes, but it is at least this, and that is that Christ died, leaving us an example, a type, a model that we should walk in his steps. Every place God asks us to put our feet on whatever path, through whatever terrain, through whatever difficulty, where God asks us to walk is a place that the footprints of Jesus are still showing. He's been there. Oh, our shepherds may fail us. I feel most of the time in my own conscience as an abject failure as a pastor. I just do. Maybe I've got some kind of complex. Maybe I need to go see a good shrink. I don't know. But it, who is sufficient for these things? I see more work undone than I ever see done. But that's not the case with Christ. He's able to save us completely and to the uttermost. His pastoral work in our souls is complete and perfect and will be brought to a perfection by His Holy Spirit. Pastors may fail us. There may be moral failings and spiritual failings. 
in pastors and they're not a good model, but Christ is. He will never let us down. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The Lord looked down and said, I myself will shepherd my people. Do you belong to him? Are you in the fold? Has the shepherd come and found you, that one lost sheep going astray? Do you know the feel of the loving arms of the shepherd, the strong arms that pick you up out of a miry pit, giving you life, cleansing you, bringing you to himself, holding you there securely? The Lord is my shepherd. He's Peter's shepherd, David's shepherd. Is he your shepherd?